In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned last week, uh, the sermons this summer are going to be focused primarily, I say primarily because you never know what the Lord is going to do in the study and might have me say something other than what I was planning on saying, uh, but going to focus primarily on the Old Testament lessons, which uh, in this year, year B, we're going through the rise of the Davidic monarchy. So last week, Israel asked for a king like the other nations, and shortly thereafter, Saul, who was the son of Kish, who was himself uh, a wealthy Benjaminite from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, he, Saul is anointed king by Samuel. And though Saul is from, and these are his words, the least of the tribes of Israel, and the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin, he has a lot going for him. Saul is precisely the kind of person you would expect to be a king. If the scriptures throw shade on the physical appearance of Leah, the wife of Jacob, conversely, do they heap praise upon Saul? Quote, and he, Kish, had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Saul's the captain of the football team. If he were an actor, he would play Superman. He's the consummate alpha male, and he is anointed king. Scripture tells that the spirit of the Lord uh, rushes upon him, and he prophesies. And the way in which the spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul is reminiscent of how the spirit of the Lord came upon the judges whom God raised up to deliver Israel. So this isn't to be understood uh, as the same way in which the Spirit of the Lord comes upon the Christian. Pentecost hadn't happened yet. It's not to be understood as the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit given to each of us at baptism. But rather, this is a statement that the Lord was with Saul and had consecrated him as king and, it, and had empowered him to fulfill his duties as such. Well, things start well for Saul. For example, he leads Israel in battle against her enemies. He wins a great victory right off the bat against the Ammonites, after which his kingship was renewed. We read that was in last week's Old Testament lesson, that uh, his kingship was renewed. Well, why? Well, because why is it renewed? It just started. Because though Saul was anointed king and he was announced as king, he didn't have the full support of all the people until after he had won this great victory. As an aside, in the ancient world and in scripture as well, there's this connection between the winning of a great battle of a great victory and one's establishment as king. The winning of a victory and the establishment of a king or a kingdom go hand in hand. For it was through the victory of Jesus on the cross, his victory over sin and death and Satan, it's through that victory that he becomes king 
on earth as in heaven. So things start well for Saul, but after a little while, it doesn't take long, a couple years into his reign, uh, Saul's descent, his demise begins. Uh, Saul's first serious error comes after uh, Jonathan, not this one, Saul's son. He defeats a garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines are, Philistines are Israel's arch enemy. The Capulets and the Montagues, the Hatfields and the Coys, cats and dogs. Well, Jonathan's victory, which was great, but it's short-lived because it proves to be a sort of swatting of the bee's nest. Listen to this. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel in response to this victory won by Jonathan. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, you don't even get a number, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. So in the face of such a horde, what is Israel to do? Well, Saul is instructed by the prophet Samuel to wait for him at Gilgal for seven days. Which sort of reminded me of the Lord of the Rings when Gandalf tells Aragorn to, to look for his coming on the first light of the fifth day. But Samuel, I mean, Ar I mean Gandalf had to show up at precisely that moment. Samuel doesn't show up on time, and the people are terrified. Uh, some are starting to leave, ab abandon the army. A and so Saul panics, and he decides to take matters into his own hands. And he, pres he presumes to do that, besides disobeying the word of the prophet, he presumes to do that which is only lawful for the priest to do. He goes and he plays priests and offers sacrifice to God. And he does so in order to uh, curry favor with God before he goes into battle. And so he's doing so presumptuously because he's not a priest, illicitly because he's not a priest, and I would add paganly. So when Samuel does come, he says this to Saul. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So that strikes one and two against Saul. A while later... Uh, Israel goes to war with the Amalekites, and God commands Saul, by way of Samuel, to destroy everyone and everything. But Saul and the people, they spared King Agag, and they also spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good. Well, Samuel busts Saul again, and, and Saul makes excuses. He says, I think it's an excuse. He says, but the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best things devoted to, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. The reason we kept back the stuff we were going to offer it is sacrifice. Samuel's reply is this. 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. The story of Saul in its its moral interpretation, that is, in its ascetic and spiritual application for our lives, it's a cautionary tale. Now, ascetic, I've defined it before, I want to define it again, it's, from, it's a Greek, from a Greek word, eschesis, which means training or discipline, and originally it was used uh, as a word for sport, as, as training for a sport. And the desert fathers are, are known, using this word eschesis, as the athletes of God. And so when we talk about spiritual discipline and we talk about ascetical theology, and I'll define it this way, ascetical theology is the art and science of cooperating with the grace of God. But I think we have in Saul a negative example. He's an example of how not to cooperate with the grace of God. You see, Saul was given, because all of our quote-unquote natural talents, where does that natural, so-called natural talent come from? It comes from the Lord. So Saul has all the God-given talent in the world. But what does he do? He buries his talent in the ground by his disobedience, by his pride, and by his hardness of heart. Like Saul, we have been given that. We've been given because we have Christ and we have the Spirit dwelling within us. We've been given exponentially more than, than he was given. I mean, the Spirit of God has not only rushed upon us, but has applied to us the very work of Christ. The Spirit has breathed new life, the life of Christ into us. The, the Spirit indwells us and has infused us with, with virtue and with gifts. But are we cultivating that which was given to us? That is, are we cooperating with grace through obedience and humility and, and softness of heart? Saul does not obey God. He breaks the law of Moses by presuming to offer sacrifice as, as if he were a priest. And he offers sacrifice, in my opinion, again, as a pagan would offer sacrifice. Because, okay, this is what I want to do. I'm going to throw up some sacrifice to try to curry divine favor so I can go out and win this victory. As if God can be manipulated. As if his word can be set aside. And just through plain ritual, he, he, 
he just has to, as a sort of cosmic vending machine, give you the blessing that you so desire. He offers sacrifice instead of, of waiting on Samuel and say, you know, he could have called the people to prayer. We see in the life of Saul that the ends do not justify the means. When he is told to completely destroy the Amalekites, he directly defies God and keeps the best the people had to offer. Now he says, again, and I don't believe him, by the way, that he was doing so in order that he might offer the choice livestock to God. But even if that's the case, doing the wrong thing for a good reason, especially when it's in clear violation of the word of God, is still the wrong thing. The complete obedience. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Now, some have taken Samuel's words and other psalms uh, where, where it says something to the effect of, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, that, that worship, uh, that the offering of sacrifices, uh, that acts of worship, uh, ritual, those things, God doesn't care about those things at all. No, what offends Almighty God is acts of devotion offered in infidelity. When it's separated from fidelity to the God whom you supposedly worship. Now, now in, a, in a marriage, in a relationship, no one would say that uh, communication or that romance or that, you know, Gary's, what, the five love languages, that, no, you don't need any of those sort of acts and stuff. That, that's, you know, it's whatever. You need to do those things. But, but what, what would a word of encouragement, what would an act of service, uh, what would a gift, which all of those things are good, mean if there is not fidelity to the, to the covenant which you made before Almighty God? So God wants our hearts and he wants our obedience and he wants us to offer our worship not in some sort of pagan manipulation of the divine, but in adoration and thanksgiving. We also see in, in Saul, um, I, I think, even though when he does get busted in chapter 15, he, he tells Samuel, I'm, I'm sorry, pray for me. But, but you do see in Saul just a lack of repentance a hardness of heart, that he's just going to do what he wants to do. So when, Saul, when Samuel tells Saul that he's been rejected as king, does he just abdicate the throne and say, okay, who's next? No, we'll see that he, he holds on to the throne pretty hard. We're going to see that as we go through First and Second Samuel. And you're going to see the opposite in David, not that David was perfect. But you're going to see a tenderness of heart, a... a a, a quickness about his repentance when he's done wrong uh, and a, a devotion to Almighty God. I want to say a word briefly on God's command to completely destroy the Amalekites. I mean, everyone, man, woman, child, all the livestock. 
this actually came up, I believe, in All Souls 101. You know, what do we do with these passages? I mean, they are, admittedly, at least for me, they're difficult to understand on the, on the literal level. I think some of it comes down to the way in which we read Scripture. If we, if we think that every single line of Scripture is a personal instruction manual of go and do thou likewise, then I think that's going to get us in a lot of trouble. These are books of history telling us what happened. Uh, but I will say this, that when there are parts of Scripture, when there's things that God does that we don't understand, we have to approach those uh, with humility. We must trust in the goodness and the wisdom of God even when we don't understand his actions. We cannot set aside the word of God when we don't understand it or don't like it. That's what Saul did. Our, and you see where humility comes in. From where do you get your sense of right and wrong? Is it not in the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ our Lord? Is it not from the triune God who has imbued us with conscience and has imbued us who know him with, again, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So our sense of right and wrong is not superior to God's. But let me say two things about God's command to destroy the Amalekites. We are told in Scripture that this is, this is judgment upon this people for the way that they had treated Israel and for the wickedness that they had done. And a God that does not deal with wickedness, that does not bring justice, that does not deal with the evil in the world, just lets it go. A God who would allow in perpetuity the righteous and the innocent to suffer is not a good God. So God is, is, is justly punishing sin. It's not for us to take that up as a personal practice or national practice, that we have the prerogative to do that. Also, we'll see, just as a matter of course, this is what happened historically, that the wicked in the land, if they were allowed to live, they would be a perpetual stumbling block to the people of God, leading them into idolatry, which they were. Again, uh, this is difficult to understand on the literal level, but I think there is much to be gleaned uh, as we read the text Spiritually and ascetically, there's much benefit. What does this say about Christ and the church and the Christian life? Well, I would submit it says something like this. On the level of living the Christian life, it is the approach that we are to take vis-a-vis -vis the wickedness in our lives is one of total annihilation. It's the total annihilation of wickedness is the approach we are to take as it concerns our own sanctification. Because you see, Jesus Christ conquered the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have died to sin. We are not then to enjoy the spoils of victory, as it were. That is, taking unto ourselves that which he defeated. Rather, we are to put to death that which is earthly in us, not walking in the ways from which we have been redeemed. See, Jesus Christ 
through his precious blood on the cross, has overcome the world. It's important to say this always. The word world is used two very different ways in Holy Scripture. One is world. God so loved the world. What's he talking about? We know that he does because he gave his son Jesus Christ. So the world can refer to the creation, cosmos, all that God made and, of course, the crown of his creation, human beings. The world can also mean Fallen humanity organized in rebellious opposition to God. Humanity organized in rebellious opposition to God. So in that sense, John says, the same John who said, for God so loved the world, says, do not love the world. Neither the things in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So if Jesus Christ has overcome the world in that sense, We are not to then befriend it, for friendship with the world is enmity with God. So, so we, we see Saul this morning as this negative example of one who persists in, in disobedience, one who, who persists in pride, who persists in hardness of heart, and, and he calls us, and God calls us using him as a lesson for our benefit to walk before him in humility and in obedience and in softness of heart being led by the Spirit. Now, we're going to land the plane, but I do have to say something about David. We're going to spend a lot of time with David, but I have to say something because his rendering of David is on the front of your service booklet, and if I don't say anything about him, it's gonna, you're going to feel like it wasn't worth the price of admission. So just a brief introduction to David. David is a type of Christ. In the Old Testament, he might be the type of Christ. He, he anticipates and he points to uh, the son of David, the Lord of David, which is Jesus. I mean, the fact that, where is he anointed? He's anointed in Bethlehem, the city in which Christ was born. The, the fact that he is the eighth son in this text, eight being the number of resurrection and new creation. These are no small clues. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse of the tribe of Judah, uh, which you know eventually the kingship has to get to Judah. It goes all the way back to Genesis saying that the scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah. So he goes to the house of Jesse to the tribe of Judah and Samuel, I think at this point, still enamored with Saul. So he sees Eliab, uh, Jesse's oldest son, the oldest, looking good. Surely this is the one. But, but he learns by going from son to son to son the lesson that God does not look on outward appearance, but on the heart. Now David initially was not even present. He wasn't even there. Well, why? It's not because his father didn't love him. It's not because he was a slouch. As we're going to see, David had all the gifting that Saul had and more. He was no slouch. Well, he wasn't there most likely because he was very, very young. The great Jewish historian Josephus says he was 10 years old when he was anointed king. He's a boy. 
At the oldest, he was 15 max. But I have no reason to disagree with the thesis. He's slightly better to the historian than I am. So he's he ends up being anointed. He's the one that the Lord chooses. He's, he's set apart and he's imbued with heavenly unction and divine power for the carrying out of one's vocation. So we see this connection between anointing with oil and the spirit who comes upon David and is with him for the whole of his life. When we're anointed in baptism, when we're anointed in confirmation, that's, that's a giving of the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, may we who have the Spirit walk in the Spirit, not going the way of Saul, but of David and ultimately of Christ. May we put to death what is earthly in us, setting our minds and affections on things above, walking in complete and total obedience, humility, holiness, and righteousness all the days of our lives.